Hello and welcome to the podcast series The Four Pillars, designed for allied health professionals, students, non-registered assistant practitioners and all associated learners. This short series is designed to open the lid on the themes related to continuous professional development and we will meet and discuss hot topics with a variety of AHP leaders, practitioners, researchers and learners on how they manage to advance their practice and that of those around them. My name is Dougie Laughlin and this podcast series is sponsored and supported by Glasgow Caledonian University and is designed to support learners undertaking the GCU post-registration master's module in advancing professional practice. Whether you are a registered AHP developing your personal development profile or a non-registered assistant practitioner developing your career towards becoming a registered AHP, we hope this will be of interest to you. The podcast series will introduce you to the contemporary thoughts on CPD and much of the content in each podcast will be themed to align to the four pillars of practice as outlined by many professional bodies and healthcare organisations. Each week I will introduce you to a different guest who I feel captures the desired qualities in the respective fields which highlight what it means to develop practice. I hope that by exploring these topics you will gain a personal insight into how you can develop yourself and your practice. Hello and welcome to the Four Pillars podcast series. And today is episode four, where I'm really happy to introduce to you Kath Sharp, who is a colleague of mine at GCU. Kath is both a respiratory physiotherapist within NHS Greater Glasgow Clyde, where she leads the paediatric team as an advanced physiotherapy practitioner and simulation educator. She is also a lecturer in physiotherapy at GCU, where she co-leads the Doctor of Physiotherapy programme. Kath has been a physiotherapist for 24 years, yet at the outset never thought she'd work in respiratory or paediatrics. Yet in 2004, she took on a paediatric respiratory physio role, and she has been there ever since. Her role has evolved and developed over the years, but she feels she has been lucky to work in a team that encourages and supports change and development of services to benefit the children, young people, families with whom they come into contact. She has always made the most of the support she's been given to take up the opportunities that have come her way, which in itself has supported her own continued professional development. She says that at the end of her career, although I have to remind her that she's not quite there yet, she wants to be able to look back and reflect on the many people who are where they are because they have been in contact with her in some way. She does what she does in order to support families in helping their child live the best life they can. So, welcome. Welcome to our podcast, Looking at the Four Pillars. Um, I know that I've prompted you a wee bit with some of these questions, but I suppose we're just going to kick straight into it and just asking you that very personal question of what has driven you personally in your own CPD? Um. So I suppose when I was thinking about this, my overarching thing, I think, is curiosity. I think I am just curious about lots of things. I want to understand how things work. I want to understand why things make an impact. I want to understand why people do what they do. When I'm working with patients and families in my kind of clinical aspect, um, and I guess I want to try and be the best version of myself, if I can, to so that I can share any knowledge and skills that I might have to affect change so that I can 
I can pass it on. I think it's not about yeah. my own personal gain. It's about what I can then offer to someone else. Yeah, we've been developing this through the series about that element of personal gain and you know gain to clients, etc. You talk about the curiosity. Where does that curiosity come from? I mean, is that something that was inbuilt in you, or is that something that's developed possibly through working through others? Um, I think probably a bit of both. I think as when I think back on my life, <laughs> uh, I think I probably always have been curious about things, but. But what I would say is that I'm very much driven by what I'm curious about rather than what other people tell me I should be curious about. So at school, um, I wasn't particularly motivated. I didn't work particularly hard. Um, not, be- not Just because I didn't necessarily understand why I needed to know this. So I did what I needed to do to pass the exams to be able to go on to do physio because that's what I knew I wanted to do. Sure. And even as doing my physio degree... I did what I needed to do to pass and I struggled with lots of it because lots of it I didn't I didn't understand and I didn't get but if I was interested and it's something that I that I wanted to learn about then I would go and learn so I've always been an avid reader I've always read lots which I think is probably why I passed exams when I was at school was because I read lots of books probably not the right books but I read lots of books um, which um, Who says they're the right books anyway? Well, I didn't read academic books. I read, you know, I read books that interested me. So I wasn't reading things for necessarily what I was meant to be studying for. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, yeah, I think just beyond that, then I think going into practice, working in areas where you think I want to know more about this, I want to understand this, I want, I want to have that knowledge because I I can't do anything better if I don't understand why I'm why I'm doing it so I think then I then learned what I what I felt I wanted to learn and what I needed to learn um, and I was much more engaged with it. And you've obviously ended up doing lots of research through your practice as well and you know today's pillars really trying to focus in on that research pillar do you think that that curiosity is something that is a uh, you know a requirement of being a researcher or do you think it just helps or can it sometimes <laughs> almost impact you negatively is being too curious about yeah well what you're seeing i think it can mean that you go on to the next thing without necessarily finishing the finishing last, the last. Yeah, yeah, um, and that. i think we're you know we could all be a bit guilty about that and i suppose lots of different things then interest me for different reasons and some i might take further and others i don't and i guess that equally that's okay, I suppose. There's maybe things that I wish maybe I had taken further. Um, so I think it can be a bit of a hindrance as well as a help. Um, but I think it's a good... I think without that curiosity, you're not going to necessarily... I think with the curiosity, you will develop your area that you're then interested in, which will make you do more learning, might make you do some research, service development, service evaluation... You know, those were never things that I necessarily thought when I finished university that I was going to do. I didn't, I wanted to be a good physiotherapist and so I wanted to do things that would make me a good clinician. Um, But I never necessarily thought I would do research because, again, I think most people think of it as something quite big and unmanageable and that you need to be really clever and, and, you know, really academic and and I don't think you do. If you've got curiosity, because yeah. you can a lot of it you can learn and and you can work with people. Because I think as well, your curiosity helps you develop your network. So you start to ask 
ask people and find people who can maybe help you so that you're developing things and you can do really small things that can really impact the service that you're delivering that is still under that research banner and I guess it's I want people to see that side of things that you can you are affecting change even by doing small service developments and small improvements just asking That's, a question yeah and just asking a question yeah. and coming and saying so why do we do this why do we do it this way could we not do it differently and there may be a very good reason why we do it that way and so we don't change it but equally there might be something there must there might be value in trying something different that mm. may work or may not which kind of brings me on to my second question of the podcast series which is all about that specific moment and trying to think of episodes during our time that have kick-started this process you know what specific moment or incident made you think you know what I can do better than this so I think <laughs> I think there's always lots I think that's one of the things with being curious is you always have lots of things but I guess one of the big things that I suppose is maybe etched in my etched in my brain, I suppose, is something that I think really fundamentally changed who I am as a practitioner as well as then driving some research was working with families um, who have children with uh, cerebral palsy who are wheelchair dependent who are then at risk of developing respiratory problems. And when I first started working in paediatrics, the kind of expectation was that um, that was just part and parcel of this condition and so you know that this is what would happen there was a bit of an inevitability about it and we wouldn't necessarily be doing lots to try and change that path or to try and improve the quality of life or you know all the things that are important to people um, while they're they're dealing with their child's kind of health needs on a day-to-day basis so it kind of was that it kind of wasn't talked about and then as they started to become more unwell it was just a kind of inevitability about it and having worked in adults and doing some uh, different ways of sort of managing respiratory care I guess and moving into respiratory one of my friends who I had worked with she was my senior when um, I was in when I, in my first ever job she'd then been away in Sweden and come back and she phoned me and said um so I'm just back, the lovely to see you, let's catch up. And then she asked me lots of questions about respiratory stuff because they've been using pet masks, which is one of the things that I use a lot of in Sweden a lot. And she wanted to understand a lot more about it because it was really helping the children to help them have sort of better quality of life by helping manage their respiratory problems. And so having spoken to her, we did a bit of joint work. We used to go for a run on a Thursday night. And as we were running, we would talk about the patients and talk about what we were doing. She started using pet masks with a couple of families. And then I spoke to the families and the mum said, I can't tell you how different my child is having done this with her. She's now... um, she's so much better she's at school she's interactive you know there's other things that happened around kind of managing respiratory health that we by speaking to the doctors we said could we do something about this we got her some oxygen studies we got her some oxygen therapy and and it was mum's thing that if I'd known a lot of this sooner I would have been so much more proactive about lots of things Mm -hmm. because her quality of life is so much better I feel like I've got my daughter back and that I think was the moment that I thought God, we can really do better for this group yeah, of people. And there's things that we can do that can really change that family's quality of life. Because who am I to say what their quality of life is? It's for them as a family to decide. I suppose that influences research quite a lot as well. When yeah. We look at our measures of outcome and we yeah. look at impact of research and yeah. we're thinking well, what's valued by the researcher might not 
necessarily be valued to the same level by those subjects or those clients that are yeah. actually being used in the, in the research process. Yeah. I like your idea of process there as well, this process of sharing with others. And, you know, sometimes the information comes from places that we don't always think are natural. It's not a, a, an official meeting. It's not a debrief. This was essentially a run in the park, literally a run in the park. Yeah. That yeah. Actually, this created a moment. Yeah. Saying, right, okay, we need to do something here. Yeah. And I think that's important for our learners as well to recognise that not all learning happens within the four walls of an institution. It happens Absolutely. everywhere at all times and, and from a variety of different sources. Absolutely. I would say the last few years, as we're doing a podcast, um, the learning that I've had from listening to lots of different people speaking on, on podcasts um, has been phenomenal and listening to lots of people talking about lots of different things that impact so I'm really interested in breathing patterns and how we breathe and how that impacts on what we do and actually listening to people who um, like people like Wil Wilm Hof and various other people who do lots of things about breathing and people who work in um, sports and exercise and you know have a very different view about how we train muscles and what muscles can do I mean that's totally like transformed my learning so yeah I think it is you go beyond the journals go yeah. beyond you know speak to people and find out all those, those yeah. who's to say back to who's reading the right books yeah. who's to say those boundaries for what you're learning are encased in, in, in a, a whether it's a presentation or a book or a journal there's, there's transferable yeah. knowledge that happens all yeah, the time absolutely right we're talking about research yeah. Talking about the age-old question, of course, which is, does research drive practice or does practice guide research? It's probably both. But where do you fit? Where do you feel research sits yeah. with some of that? And where do you think it's most valuable in practice? Um, so I do, I think, I do think that they, they kind of, um, there is a reciprocal relationship there. Um, but I do think the balance should be tipped towards clinical practice, guiding research, rather than the other way the other way about primarily because I think we have to remember who that well I suppose it depends on the research but ultimately as a clinician we have to remember who really should benefit from the research and that's the person the service user the you know the the client the the patient whoever it is that you are targeting your service at and if we don't speak to them and we don't involve them in the process um then then we're not answering the questions that they really want. Coming mm -hmm. back to that point yeah. that you were making, that we're you know we're answering questions that we think are important, and that was when I was um, looking at stuff around self management, which I did from a PhD. That was one of the biggest things that I um, a total shift in my mindset was realizing that actually, if we're going to be effective, so I think as a, I thought as a clinician to start with, that I knew what they, these families needed to do. Um, and so I could develop a, a self-management plan based on all the things that I think they should do, um, and that would be great. And we would test that, and that and then that brilliant imagery. And then when you delve into the literature and start reading about what 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 is self-management, what and nobody can really define it. But the thing that really matters is that it has to be driven by the people who are going to do it every day. So if we don't look to them and ask them, what do you think you need to make your condition better to to work with this then we're, we can't we can't deliver something that's actually going to meet their needs so they're so they're not going to engage and then we're going to you know say that well they just don't they don't engage or they don't and that's not true they're 
So we make assumptions on the basis of their non-compliance with either yeah. the guidance that's come out of the research, but actually the research was possibly flawed from the outset yeah. because it wasn't necessarily actually meeting the needs of the service users yeah. that would yeah. then need that guidance. Yeah. It's, you know, it's one of the, I've been fortunate enough to be involved in some co-creation projects and community engagement recently, and, and that's the first thing we talk about. Don't start a project until everybody's on the same page yeah. because otherwise you're off in a direction that might take you to a place that you didn't ever want yeah. to end up. Absolutely. And I suppose research is possibly the same, a little bit like that. Yeah, because yeah. I, th- I think we... and. I think we come from a good place. We think we want to be able to help. That's why we're doing research. We want to be able to offer something that is going to be of benefit. But I think we've got to remember ultimately whose benefit it needs to be. And and I don't have all the answers to that. And does anyone? <laughs> no one does. But and I think that's that whole co-creation, isn't it? Because because yeah. the population that I work with could be very different from a population based in another part of the country who've got a whole different set of circumstances that impact mm-hmm. what would work yeah. for them. And, and and we know that. We know that social deprivation and all of these other yeah. things impact on on how people will interact with services and, and what they what they really value and what they want. But if if we're not hooked into that, um so I think the balance needs to be tipped that we're that we're always involving them somehow in driving the questions that we're yeah. gonna we're gonna answer. Yeah. Um so that we then build our research to answer those questions um there will be sometimes i think that research drives the clinical practice because there'll be things that come up and that's that curiosity new things new techniques new things that will come up that will but i think the balance should always be the other way that it's clinical practice if you like and specifically the patient client you know whatever you want that they're the ones that are driving the questions yeah okay so you know this is another back to a kind of personal question, and it's it's mainly about your engagement in the process of continued professional development. I'm, I'm trying to think back your career and, and what aspect of CPD did you enjoy, or do you still enjoy the most, or is there none of it? It's enjoyable. Surely um, there's elements. No, I think there's lots of it is enjoyable. I think, and I guess it's like that. So I had the joy of being audited by the HCPC a few years ago, and I think when you go when you start to then think Sorry, about guys, I'm just touching wood here for everybody that's listening. <laughs> go back. It's not as bad as you think, actually. Um, and I think when you then look back, you know, when they want you to detail, you realise that your entire day is CPD, really, to some extent, depending on what you're doing, and because yeah. you, if you know, you see a patient, and it might be the tenth patient with whatever condition, you know. So I see people with dysfunctional breathing. So it might be my 10th patient with dysfunctional breathing that's come through the door today. None of them are the same, though. So it's 10 very different assessments, different reflections on what I think is going on. I might do very similar. I might give them similar advice. But the whole process of assessing them and working out what's going on is very different across the board. And, and that, I think, if you're... If we are engaged in CPD, we should be reflecting on on that all the time and thinking about what that is. Um, and then, you know, if you're if you're going and speaking to people, asking people questions, going and finding out if someone comes and asks you a question, I don't know the answer. Let's go and find someone who knows the answer and going and again finding people who might be able to help you. So is that an stuff. enjoyable thing for you when you think about CPD about making that link? 
to day-to-day -day activities, just actually saying, do you know what, I don't need to schedule yeah. a time for CPD because CPD happens as soon as I walk in that door yeah. and, you know, yeah. and, and as part of my practice. Yeah. And I, th I think it's getting people to see that because so the bits that I don't like is the the mandatory bits, you know, the bits yeah. that are like the tick box exercise. I'm not good at that. I don't, because again, it comes back to, I don't feel, I don't, I need to know why I need to know this. And mm -hmm. if you're telling me a reason, so, you know, because you've got to do it. I've, yeah, that's not that's not good enough. Tell me why yeah. I need to know it, and if I know why, I will engage with it. But if I've just got to do it to tick a box for someone, then I'll do it because I have to do it. But I'm dragged kicking and screaming through it, and you know, and I don't. I'm not good at learning prose. I don't think they're a good way of learning. You know, but if you give me a reason that I need to understand it, so if we were writing a new SOP, for example, with a piece of kit and I need to understand the infection control purposes and the cleaning and all that kind of stuff, then I'll go and learn what I need to know to be able to write the SOP. But don't ask me just to go and read infection control stuff to tick a box. That's what I don't like. And I, I think, especially I've worked with students and I know that you know some of their tasks are maybe around, so what is, what's what been your CPD? And look at your CPD. They're, it's very, they're very focused on, have they been on courses? Have they... Yes. Have they, you know, what what can I? And I get that because it's a, it's something that's quite demonstrable, isn't it? You've got a certificate; it's all there. It's it's all, and I'm not so good at the writing out my reflections and you know keeping a keeping a really good track. I've got, I've got things that everything's in my diary, so I could look and see it's in my diary. But those opportunities that are those ad hoc, I don't necessarily always translate that into here's all my written reflection and yeah. isn't it lovely? Yeah. Because you're reflecting all the time in your head. And and what you reflect on in your head, you can't always put on a bit of paper because it doesn't. You don't doesn't always fit. have the language or 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 anything to be able to do that. Um, but I think we have to get into that mindset that we're we're doing it all the time. We're constantly learning. We're constantly developing. We're constantly. We should, if we're if we're really thinking about it, we should be taking all these bits of all those different, and we should be giving people time mm. to have you know half an hour to think about. Okay, what yeah. what did I do this morning? Rather than it this conveyor belt of doing stuff. I suppose stuff. that's the nub of this. It's not that people are not learning as they're working. Of course they are. That's just the nature of tacit learning. But there's an element here about understanding how do we capture that. Yeah. And, and sometimes reframing and having that headspace to talk through or unpick a process is yeah. as valuable as it is for, from a learning perspective than it is for a documenting evidence. So the process of documenting evidence in itself becomes a re-establishing truth or re-establishing interpretation as you write it out. Yeah. So yeah. it's a learning event. So, yeah. yeah. Okay, our final question of this podcast is... Who benefits from CPD? Um, so I think, I suppose as an individual, you benefit from it because you're, you're developing your skills, your behaviours, your knowledge that gives you different opportunities and allows you to access lots of things. Um, I think the people that you work with, so your wider team, because if you're learning and developing, then you've got things that you can pass on and share and you can help them to learn and develop and I suppose ultimately for me it's always about who am I here to deliver this service for so whoever is accessing that for me it's about the families and the 
um, you know, the the children and young people that I interact with, or or that come and join our service and are part of our service for whatever reason, is they're they're the ones that are going to benefit the most if if as a team we're all engaged in CPD and making sure that we are the best version of ourselves that we can present. Then the outward facing thing is that we're going to give that service to them, and I suppose that's. For me, that's the pinnacle. You know, there's lots of different bits that help, and I think we're, you know, we're all part of a bigger network, which is great. And that's what I like about working in healthcare is there's lots of people that you're all part of this bigger picture. Um, but I suppose ultimately, for me, it's about those families that yeah, I, absolutely. you know, and, and you've seen that at close hand yeah, as well. Yeah. The impact of that. Well, listen, thank you, Kath Sharp, for your very <laughs> engaging conversation with us right. this afternoon. Uh, thanks very much from the GCU team and we hope to invite you back on someday. Thanks for asking me, it's been a pleasure. Thanks to Kath for that very engaging insight into the research and evidence pillar of practice. Next week we will be joined by David Wiley who will be looking at the leadership pillar of practice. 